The haze is back. Air pollution across Southeast Asia has been reaching unbreathable levels, particularly in Indonesia, as the El Nino weather phenomenon has dried out peatlands that have been burned to expand plantations. So who's to blame? This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. As this podcast is recorded, the authorities in Indonesia have ordered remote learning for schools in Palembang and Jambi cities due to the thick haze pollution. Malaysia has issued pollution warnings in the west of Peninsula Malaysia and Sarawak, blaming transboundary haze from Indonesia, which has been flatly denied by the Indonesian authorities. Singapore has been suffering too, although favourable wind direction has spared the city-state from the worst of the haze, which has so far not been as severe as previous outbreaks in 2019 and 2015, at least in the southern parts of Southeast Asia. In March, parts of northern Southeast Asia, Thailand, Laos and Myanmar experienced some of the worst haze in recent memory due to agricultural burning. This year's haze has prompted environmental campaign group Greenpeace to call on the region's governments to introduce domestic laws to combat transboundary haze air pollution so that companies linked to the fires are held to account. Joining the Eco Business podcast to discuss the worsening transboundary haze situation and how to combat it is Joseph de Cruz, Chief Executive of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, the lead certifier for sustainable palm oil. Welcome to the podcast, JD. Thanks very much, Robin. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely delighted to be speaking to you again. Um, And the first question is about, frankly, the weather. So in large parts of Southeast Asia, obviously, there's we've entered a period of haze. Now, historically, in years when the haze hasn't been this severe, um, the last few years we've had wet weather, palm oil companies have often said that this is the result of successful no deforestation peatlands and exploitation policies, right, NDPE. Mm. Now that the haze is back, does this prove that the haze is more the result of the weather and drained peatlands than sustainable farming policy? Mm. Good question. And it's always fun in these conversations to start off by talking about the weather. So let me break that down into two parts, Robin. Um, Firstly, is the haze a result of the weather? And are the actions being taken by companies, sustainable practices um, contributing to the solution? So on the weather, as you probably know, the RSPO continuously tracks incidents of hotspots meaning um, satellite data showing the possibility of fire or heat signatures across the entire region. And we've been doing so continuously for years, whether it's a haze season or not. Now, in September last year, 2022, in the course of the entire month, there were a total of 8,941 hotspots detected across Malaysia and Indonesia. In September of 2023, this past month, there were 121,962. And mind you, this is not just within RSPO member concessions or within oil palm estates, but across all of Malaysia and Indonesia. We all know from the weather point of view what the reason for that might be. Um, the El Nino effect, uh, the Indonesia diapole, basically hotter and drier weather, resulting in more fires. So do I think the weather is a factor in the haze? Absolutely. Now, the second part of your question was, are the actions being taken by palm oil companies, the NDPE policies, contributing to a solution? So 
Let me dive into that a bit. As you know, the RSPO has had an NDP policy in place for the last five years, since November 2018. And NDP, of course, means no deforestation, no new planting on peat, no exploitation of workers or local communities. In addition to that, the RSPO standards that our members apply also require members to not only not use fire for clearing, but to actively prevent fires on their plantations and to work with surrounding communities to minimize and prevent fires in the surrounding areas. So does it have any effect? Well, RSQ member concessions cover approximately 28% of the oil farm estates across Malaysia and Indonesia. I mentioned a moment ago that in September this year, there were 121,962 hotspots detected across the region. Of those, in the 28% of land area oil palm estates covered by RSPO certification, there were 551 hotspots. 121,962 overall in the 28% of land covered by RSPO certification in our NDP rules, as well as the other rules our members put in place to manage fire, 551. So I would argue, yes, NDP policies and the kind of standards that the RSPO requires from our members does contribute to reducing the incidence of hotspots. Will it prevent them? No. Um, fires are going to be a serious challenge for the years to come. But I do think the efforts that the industry has made in this regard have been worthwhile and should generally be applauded. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'm a quite a big fan of Global Forest Watch, which mm. allows you to look at where the hotspots are. It's extremely rare, I've found, to find hotspots in RSPO certified concessions, which does say a lot about the certification scheme and how well it's tracking. Now, one issue about the haze is always about blame. Now, mm. smallholders tend to be blamed for the haze using slash and burn techniques. Do you feel that they're still the main cause of the problem? And, and what does the data that, that you see tell us about who's to blame? Yeah, you're right. I think one of the other automatic assumptions that are made when fires and haze occurs is it's caused by burning, it's caused by burning in all palm plantations, it's caused by burning by smallholders using slash and burn. And as we just discussed a minute ago, that first assumption that it's automatically all palm companies um, using fires to clear land, that doesn't really hold at least in the part of the all palm world that comes within the ambit of the RSPO. I think the other thing that's important about how we are approaching this issue these days, Robin, and this includes with smallholders, is much less of a focus on who caused the fire, but rather, where does the fire occur, and therefore, whose responsibility is it to respond to it? So, in our RSPO system, and increasingly also in the way government regulations address these issues, the responsibility lies with the person who owns and controls the land, irrespective of how the fire started or who started it. Now, with smallholders, <clears throat> is there um, a factor here of smallholders in some agricultural supply chains using fire for land clearing? I think the data shows, yes, it is an issue. But of course, in years which are wetter, the risk of these fires spreading and causing haze is much lower. So the connection with weather is still critical. In Indonesia, for instance, the government regulations prohibit the use of fire for land clearing, but there is an exception for smallholders with land holdings under two hectares. 
I believe because the assumption is that people in that marginal areas and in those marginal conditions don't often have an alternative for land clearing. I believe the Indonesian government's actually revisiting that regulation. In the case of the RSPO, where we have smallholders certified under our standards, those smallholders are also held to a similar standard as our large growers, meaning no use of fire for land clearing and active management of fire within their plantations. So it's possible for smallholders to manage their land holdings sustainably without the use of fire. And I think the challenge for us is how do we provide smallholders with the support, the, the knowledge, the resources needed to be able to farm sustainably without using fire as a tool, whether that's in oil farm, whether that's in rice cultivation or in other agricultural supply chains. Okay, got you. Now, I'll just um, make this point, which I think is important, right? Um, feel free mm -hmm. to, to push back, but no matter who starts um, haze causing fires, I think it's key to point out that, you know, the, over many years, peatlands have been systematically drained by large companies, some palm oil, some pulp and yep. paper, particularly in areas such as South Sumatra, West Kalimantan, that has made the land automatically vulnerable to fire, no matter who starts it right. Um, now, I want to ask you about how to identify who's responsible for it. How can the palm oil sector get better at identifying who is responsible for haze? And um, what is RSPO's procedure for engaging with companies found to be culpable? So, you're right that the draining of peatlands is probably one of the other most important underlying drivers for why seasonal fires for land clearing have now become a systematic transboundary issue in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Because these dried peatlands have so much carbon in them and burn for such a long time that they tend to generate huge amounts of smoke. In the RSPO, of course, we have now got a prohibition on any further conversion of peatlands, and we're working actively with our members who have plantations and peatlands on how to better manage and ultimately rehabilitate those areas to prevent this kind of occurrence. A lot of the challenge on this question of who is at fault, I think has to recognize that for a lot of these peatlands, the change in the ecological structure, the draining of these peatlands, is now unfortunately a bit complete. We can prevent further drainage and clearing. We can work to re-wet these peatlands, which, for example, the Indonesian government has been doing quite actively already. But it is going to be a problem that we face for the next few years. Who's at fault is a difficult question to answer because the conversion of these peatlands at that point in time was legal. It's only been more recently, I think, that national and global policy has recognized the, the tremendous damage that these kinds of um, conversions can do. Now we know it. Now we're taking steps to respond to it. And hopefully over time, we will be able to minimize the impact that this kind of peatland conversion has had, not just on the haze, but also on CO2 emissions. Absolutely. And I sort of answer my next question was about, you know, how the sector can work towards ensuring the haze is minimized in the future. You know, quite depressing, really. Is the haze just a fact of life now uh, for every dry season that we experience um, bad air? Um, can the problem ever go away, given the status you've, you've referenced of Indonesia's peatlands, which are in large parts um, drained and vulnerable to fire? It is depressing to think that this is just something we have to accept as part of the status quo. And, and honestly, I don't think we should. 
there's a lot that can be done now that we recognize the problem to respond to it. First of all, by, by simply ensuring we don't do any further damage. But secondly, also, there is a lot of work being done now in government policy, by government investments, also in science, to understand how we can overcome this problem, to re-wet and rehabilitate peatlands. You probably know that the Indonesian government has had a peatland rehabilitation program underway for a number of years, and has actually rehabilitated and rewetted quite large areas of, of um, peatlands within the country. On the question of, are we going to have to live with haze, with forest fires more regularly in the years to come? That, unfortunately, I think is where the challenge is because the incidences of haze and forest fires are tied very much to climate extremes. And as you know, on the global climate side, we are seeing heat events, forest fires becoming prevalent, not just in Southeast Asia linked to peatlands or, or agriculture, but in many other parts of the world. Will this be a continuing challenge, perhaps even a growing challenge? Yes. Can we do more collectively to respond to it, to minimize the risk of fire? Absolutely. And that's where I think the example of the, the work being done through the RSPO partnership to show that in 28% of the agricultural landscapes in Indonesia, in the month of September, only 0.45% of the fires, 551, occurred in those landscapes points to the fact that we can do better. And what we'd like to do is to work with the rest of the industry, with our government partners and others, to try and roll these kinds of approaches out across the rest of the industry and ultimately, hopefully, also the rest of agriculture in the region to try and minimize the damage that we're seeing today. It takes a huge effort in order to reach these kinds of results, but it is possible. Some hope, though, at least. There's lots of work to be done by the sector to, to minimise haze. But yeah, um, I think it's fairly certain that the problem is not going to go away overnight, right? Now, changing tack a little bit, let's talk about finance. Mm. Now, mm. one of the issues that's that's cropped up is that financial institutions are prepared to finance the energy sector, but are less willing to consider agriculture. They see it's too risky, um, especially talking about smallholder farmers. There's there's few banks that are willing to take the risk on a small farming enterprise. Mm. Um, now, we're seeing that, you know, financial institutions saying they're not backing the EU's new deforestation law as it's faced backlash from producing countries concerned about unfair trade barriers. So what's your take on this, J.D.? And how can we advance, I guess, collaborate, better collaboration between banks, financial institutions and downstream actors to, to scale yeah. the climate action with, that we need? Yeah. Let me work my way backwards to your question, Robin. I think on the issue of financial institutions backing or not backing the EU deforestation law, just to be precise on that one, the statements that financial institutions are not backing the EU deforestation law was actually made by a colleague from the European Commission not by a bank. So it's, it's, I guess, an opinion from the people within the EU that they're not seeing that backing. For the record, I have not seen or heard of the financial institution actually saying they don't back the law. We also very much support the principle of trying to tackle deforestation and to eliminate it from supply chains. That's what we've been doing for years now. Though we, of course, have concerns and ongoing conversations about how to apply that in a way that actually contributes to the solution rather than creating barriers for smallholders. And the second part of your question was exactly about that, about the challenge of working with smallholders 
on issues like financing for climate transition. Is it difficult? Yes. If you worked in the finance sector, you know that it's much easier to structure a loan to convert an energy plant to a renewable source than it is to work with a thousand smallholders to help them move towards more sustainable practices. Working in agriculture and working with small communities is messy and complicated, but it's necessary. It's very necessary because that's where many of the greatest benefits accrue, not just in terms of reducing CO2 emissions and climate change, but also by providing greater livelihoods, greater social impact, greater opportunity for people. In our experience at the RSPO, Robin, one of the most effective ways in which we're able to work with smallholders and influence change in those sectors is by working through groups. So in the RSPO system itself, when we certify smallholders, we don't certify individual smallholdings. We work with communities to set up collaborative groups, cooperatives or other forms with multiple smallholders who work together to understand our certification system and to get certified. And they are then audited and assessed collectively as a group. Now that I think is part of the solution also for financing. If financial institutions can work with platforms like ours to connect to and financially support these smallholder groups, then you have a mechanism by which you can deploy financing on a way that's actually feasible and scalable. Because these groups are set up as legal entities, they're routinely audited, they're trained, they are mutually accountable, and they're large enough in scale that you can actually deploy financing in a way that's feasible for banks and other financial institutions. So that's a space where I think, and I hope we can work more with financial institutions to figure out what kind of support do smallholders need to be able to deal with the kind of climate transitions they will need to, to overcome in the years to come. How do we look at the impacts of climate change on these smallholdings, whether it is in terms of water management, whether it's in terms of fire management, and deploy smart financial solutions to help them make those transitions? And how do we uh, deploy tools and solutions like risk insurance to help them deal with the possible consequences of climate change, whether it's flooding or whether it's fire? I think there's a lot we can do there. And if we work with smart financial institutions, I think we can demonstrate real progress in the years to come. Great. So, I mean, smallholders are a big part of the sustainable palm oil conversation. RSPO is holding its annual roundtable in Jakarta next month. So tell us a bit about how smallholders will feature in the discussion. And will the focus be on finance? Will it be on haze? What, what's going to be the focus for smallholders at RT? Well, first of all, I'm hoping that those of you who attend RT or read and hear about it will see a very strong presence of smallholders, not just as participants in an audience, but very much as an active part of the vision of the RSPO we have for the years to come. Why? RSPO is fundamentally a sustainability organization, not just sustainability from an environmental point of view, but also from a social and economic point of view. And working with smallholders, engaging with them to make their practices more sustainable, unlocks tremendous benefits also on the social and economic side of sustainability, making local communities more resilient, giving greater opportunity for not just the farmers themselves, but also young people in those communities, young women, to be able to develop new activities. So that's a part of the work of the RSPO that excites me a lot personally, and I'm quite shameless about that. At the RT, we're talking much more now, not just about ways in which we can work with smallholders, and we have uh, sessions in the RT 
looking at how you can empower smallholders to succeed in the midst of a more complex regulatory environment. Um, and other uh, sessions talking about how we can provide tools and solutions on financing and climate and others. But we are also having sessions that focus on the role of smallholders in working collaboratively to overcome these challenges, whether it's climate change, whether it's sustainability overall, whether it is building more robust supply chains. One critical factor in those conversations is how people downstream, processes, traders, retailers, and consumers can more effectively support smallholders in their sustainability journey. One of the biggest challenges we face, Robin, in some of the regulatory conversations about traceability and deforestation-free status is that a lot of these regulations require that a smallholder is able to deliver her product to an end market, say in Europe, and be able to provide documentation all the way through that supply chain to show where the product came from, that it is produced sustainably, and that it's actually traceable back to origin. Now that's a big challenge for a smallholder who often sells her fresh fruit bunches to a local trader who then sells it to an aggregator who then sells it to a mill. Smallholders don't control the supply chain. They don't have a lot of influence on it. But in the RSPO, we've actually had a solution for that for many years, which is, for smallholders who cannot supply their product to sustainably traceable supply chains, we provide them with a credit. So a smallholder who produces a product sustainably and can demonstrate and verify that, even if she's forced to sell it to a conventional buyer who cannot provide sustainability uh, uh, documentation, she can then claim a credit from the RSPO for the, product, for the production and people downstream retailers and others can buy these credits to recognize and compensate her for the effort she's putting to produce sustainably. Those credits have been a critical pathway for our smallholders to actually get recognized and get compensated for the effort they put in to ensure sustainable production at the farm gate. And in spite of the changes in the regulatory environment, we are really encouraging our members to continue supporting smallholders directly by buying these credits. And that's another big conversation we'll be having at the RT. How do we continue to make sure that the smallholders themselves continue to be recognized and support for the effort they're doing on farm, even if the global supply chains between them and the end user in a supermarket are too complicated sometimes to provide a solution? Yeah, I mean, smallholders, not to be underestimated in terms of their, although by their nature, you know, it implies that, you know, they may only have a few hectares, but collectively they make up mm -hmm. something like, is it 40% of the global farm oil output, which is absolutely huge. And as you mentioned there, the yeah. EE deforestation law, helping smallholders live up to those regulations is, is critical for the future of the industry. Now, the future of the industry actually is what I want to ask you about next, JD, for final question, because mm -hmm. I understand that RT, looking forward to the next two de decades will be a theme. Now, one specific question I wanted to ask you is about, I'm sure at RT, the consistent theme always comes up, is how can we increase the share of sustain, certified sustainable palm oil beyond that 19, 20%, whatever it is? Mm, how, yeah. how in the future can we build beyond that? But yeah, yeah what do you think is going to emerge as the sort of crucial themes to look out for for the future of the sector? Yes, the RSPO partnership will be celebrating its 20th anniversary in April next year. And for a lot of the old timers in the industry, it's actually remarkable to imagine that we've now come 20 years since the RSPO idea was mooted. And as a result of that, we are actually sparking a conversation with our membership to say, 
what should the next 20 years bring? What are the challenges this industry needs to address and overcome? And what role can a partnership like the RSBO play in that space? Now, you alluded to the 20% question, which is that the percentage of global off-arm production certified on the RSPO has been at about 20% for the last few years and doesn't seem to be moving. Um, obviously, we want to see that percentage go up. And in fact, when we look at the pipeline of production areas coming under certification, the volume of production is going to go up in the years to come. Just on the basis of our existing members who are progressively getting more and more of their plantation certified, we will see that percentage of production go up. The challenge we face for a while now is increasing demand, getting the downstream actors, consumer goods companies, traders, retailers, and consumers, getting them to be willing to pay the small premium required to buy sustainably. And that's going to be a big focus of our work in the years to come as well. How do we work in emerging markets like India and China and Malaysia and Indonesia to convince consumers and consumer goods manufacturers that they should source a sustainable product? This is a, a case that's been made very strongly in markets like Europe and the US and Japan already. Much of the growth in the markets now coming from the, the emerging markets. So that's going to be a big focus of our work in the years to come. But in addition to that, Robin, I think one shift you'll see from the RSPO is that we are not only looking at certification as our only way to change the industry, meaning we don't just focus on what percentage of the industry is certified according to RSPO standards. We see that as an end goal, but we also see a lot of other ways in which we need to try and influence the industry as a sustainability catalyst. So part of our future strategy is, how do we more actively engage with the part of the industry that's not yet part of RSPO? Instead of just saying that the first thing you should do is become an RSPO member, how do we engage? How do we advocate? How do we share experience? How do we show smallholders, emerging producers, smaller, more marginal producers that following these practices actually is of benefit to them? And also, how do we as a global partnership lead the way in thinking about what does sustainability mean for the oil farm sector in the next 20, 30 years? What are the challenges we need to face? Now, we've been dealing with environmental issues like deforestation for many years. We've been battling issues like forest fire and haze for many years. And we're making progress, but there are other challenges in the sustainability space as well. How do we continue to provide decent jobs and livelihoods for workers? So we continue to attract new generations of people to come in and work in the sector to rethink and reimagine how we produce our farm. How do we work on rights issues, better engaging with local communities? How do we build models for sustainable oil farm production in other parts of the world that are more tuned to the social and political realities of those countries? where large-scale, vertically integrated ivory businesses may not be the ideal solution. How do we build on the power of smallholders? You mentioned just now that globally, 40% of production is by smallholders, but in many emerging regions like Africa and Latin America and Thailand, that percentage is as high as 70%. So we need to build sustainability models that also respond to the needs and the priorities of groups like that. So I think this conversation about where the RSPO goes which is really a conversation about where sustainability goes in the oil farm sector in the next 20 years, that's going to be a really fascinating conversation, which we hope to really kick off at the RT, but continue over the months and years to come. 
Okay, I've got to ask you another question. You mentioned India and China. You could argue that while there are leakage markets, and by leakage markets, I mean markets into which unsustainable palm oil is sold, we will always have haze. Now, I've Mm. got to ask you about the progress you see RSPO, not just RSPO, but the movement towards sustainably cultivating palm oil and buying it by countries like India, the world's largest palm oil importer, if I'm not wrong, and and China, obviously. What sort of progress do you think you're making in these hugely Mm. important markets? I'm going to actually push back on terminology, first of all, which is to say, I don't like and I don't subscribe to this idea of seeing markets like India and China as leakage markets, because that creates a perception that you have a black and white. Some parts of the world source palm that's sustainable and all others source palm that's dirty and conventional and, and you know icky. The reality is it's much more a pathway, a trajectory. To take India, for instance, where I was I was in India again just over a month ago, having intense conversations with our members and partners there. Does India source a lot of certified sustainable RSTO palm oil today? No. But within the industry in India, there is an intense conversation going on about how our members and our partners can convince consumers, consumer goods manufacturers, retailers and others to better recognize the importance of sustainability to gradually bring in sustainability principles into their sourcing and purchasing, and also to look at which of the many um, supply chains for palm products in India may be places where sustainability can be introduced better than others. You're right that India is the largest import market for palm in the world. And this doesn't just go into cooking oil used by street vendors, it goes into cosmetics and pharmaceuticals and other high-end products. And in those spaces, there's a lot of effort being made now to make the case for sustainability. So India to me is not a leakage market. India is a market of potential. It's an emerging market. And if we engage with that market well, I really believe that we're going to see tremendous progress there in the next few years. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing probably a marked increase in the engagement and the visibility of our Indian members and partners during the RT as well. So watch that space. I think a lot's going to happen there. JD, I stand corrected on the use of leakage market in this sense and really appreciate the nuance. Thank you so much for um, a great conversation. And that's a good place to leave it. My pleasure, Robin. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure talking with you and your colleagues. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks for listening.